Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 2, Episode 13. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, with the elections mostly behind us, we will be discussing possible tax and legislative changes that could affect franchisees in the operation, financing, and sale of their businesses in 2021 and beyond. I've invited two tax experts to share their expertise with us, Dan Clift and Jim Ball. These guys are excellent. It should be a very informative session for everyone. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk, delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. Welcome, everybody, to what we're calling the tax and legislative changes affecting the franchise valuations. I mean, this is a topic that is getting a lot of attention right now. And so before I introduce our our tax experts and and good friends of mine, I'll say this. uh, You know, it was after, I'm not a very political person, but I'll say it was just after the, the election was made to Biden, you know, that Saturday, whatever that Saturday was. And on Monday, I got, I think, almost a dozen calls from large franchisees, you know, saying, what is this going to mean to the sale of my company? And at that point in time, I kind of realized, you know, this is a topic that affects a lot of us because especially in a big life-changing event like the sale or financing or the acquisition of a company, I mean, you, you know, you are at a kind of a milestone event at recognizing, you know, a big tax event. And you're obviously, if you're a franchisee looking to sell your company, you're clearly as interested or more interested in the uh, in the net number than you are the gross number, right? So this is one that that hopefully you'll find uh, you know applicable. Again, these are just going to be opinions, but hopefully they're good opinions, and and you can use them or follow up with this anytime afterwards. You know me, I'm the ugly guy over there on the left. As you're looking at the screen, I wanted to just quickly introduce Dan Clift and Jim Ball. Dan is a managing partner at William Wetter and Company. He's uh, just an excellent guy, very very smart guy. He's a managing partner there. He's a great CPA, gives a lot of good advice as it pertains to high net worth individuals and businesses. And uh, he's got a good perspective on tax that I think will be really valuable for you to listen to. And he's located as Jim Ball is in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, Jim Ball, interestingly enough, is Derek Ball's dad. And uh, Derek works for Unbridled Capital, as you know. Jim started off at the IRS, so we didn't like him. Ha ha ha. Now we do. He's been an attorney, got his law degree and focuses, you know, on estate planning high net worth individuals and has a great perspective on tax. The two of these guys together are like, are like peas in a pod. So thanks again, guys, for joining us and welcome to the webinar. How much do we owe you for that introduction? (laughs) Hey man, you know, I'm all about spreading the love. You know what I mean? Well, you also (laughs) forgot to mention that Jim in his former life was also a CPA too. So, Oh, I knew that actually. Yes, I'm sorry I didn't mention that. What else were you, Jim? Did you used to jump tall buildings with a single bound? Well, I really can't talk about that in public. So, <laughs> how cool is it as a side story that you know? I mean, I can share this. I guess you know, Dan is is my CPA, and as I was meeting Dan, he said, "Hey, uh, Jim Ball is a friend of mine, and he's got this kid named Derek who uh, you know may." Uh, you just should talk to about coming to work at Unbridled Capital. And that was about four years ago. And and Derek's turned out to be, you know, one of our key folks in the company to help it grow. So I don't know, man, it's a crazy little world we live in. It is a crazy world. It really is. Okay. So here we are, summary of discussion. I mean, I'm going to go through the first slide, spend a few minutes on it. 
And then after that, I think I think I'm going to turn it over mostly to these gentlemen so you can hear their expertise. They're going to talk about the shifting political landscape, some of the looming tax changes and what it might mean to you. I want to talk a little bit about I want them to talk a little bit about the PPP loan forgiveness and taxation program. And there's been some stuff come out today, guys, that I've been reading about a second round of PPP for people who have less than 300 employees and you know, we experienced one quarter of 30% sales drop, a revenue drop over last year, could apply for a second round of it. That's something we may chat about because I personally uh, pops into my mind. want to talk about estate planning. I mean, there's been a lot, I've been getting a lot of calls. I know you guys have been too about the estate planning exemption, maybe changing and what that does for, for franchisees and for business owners. And then I think we'll spend some time talking about flexibility and what to do as you think about what's going to happen or what could happen to our to our tax and legislative situation. And then we'll, we'll answer some questions along the way. Does that sound okay with you guys? That works. Awesome. Okay. Well, I am going to refer a little bit to my notes again. I was just jotting down today, like, where have we been in 2020? So humor me for a few minutes. January to March of 11th before, you know, which I can kind of consider the day that everything fell apart with the, with the pandemic. I... You know, we were in an environment where sales and profits for most brands were largely flattening. You know, margins were a little bit under pressure. You can remember that there was a big push by franchisors for development, development, development. And so over the the storyline starting the year in 2020 was largely one of these of there's too many restaurants. Sales have flattened and headed downwards nationally across all of restaurants. And traffic was under siege because of overdevelopment and kind of a little bit of moderating consumer spending. So you started seeing like seven or eight, five or six of the national lenders in the franchise space kind of pull back. A couple of them stopped lending actively, shut down their franchise lending arms, and some others were quietly kind of ratcheting back their lending, uh, you know, kind of platforms. M&A prices were still strong. There was a pretty good equilibrium between buying and selling companies. And so prices uh, on an EBITDA basis and cap rates were largely, you know, kind of flat. And I would would express it as slightly beyond the crest of the wave, Uh, you know, and and margins for franchisees were a little bit under pressure, right? They're a little bit under pressure. So we uh, jumped into March 11th. Unbridled had just received a Dealmaker of the Year Award down in Dallas for the Franchise Times for selling a 100-unit Pizza Hut business. And then, like, as we were down there, wham, it all changed. And I know each of you who's listening here can think about the fear and the confusion and everything related to it. If you own a business and you stare at the ceiling at three o'clock in the morning, like I did, like, think about, like, I think about it, like, I I know where I was in middle school when the, uh, when the spaceship blew up, right? You know, like, obviously, I was at Vanderbilt MBA school preparing for a final exam or, you know, or, you know, when the when the Twin Towers came down. I mean, I, I'll never forget where I was when, when, and I'm sure you won't either, when the COVID pandemic really hit. And we were all shocked, you know, we were all shocked. We come into May, the PPP program was pretty widespread. I'm not a big believer in government programs, but I'll tell you, I think it really did a lot of good in getting capital in the hands of these businesses and had it filter through to employees and the, and the average public. And, and you started to see quietly speaking, some franchisees and certain brands really start doing well. I know we were, we eventually ended up selling it. It was like a 70 unit uh, Sonic business, uh, Buddy McLean's business in the Southeast, mostly in Florida and then up in Alabama too. And, you know, and, and we started learning that the Sonic brand was one and so was Wingstop and so, you know, anything that had delivery and drive-through sales were all of a sudden like up 20 and 30 and 40 and 50% year over year every day. 
And, um, you know, we started seeing that the resiliency of people wanting to eat out, but they weren't doing it in casual dining and largely not fast casual either. They were doing it. They were doing it in QSR. And so we started seeing that in the May time frame. You started seeing a big push to, to pizza and to chicken. Obviously, pizza is easy to understand why pizza was a concept that, you know, you can get it delivered. You can carry it out. It's easy to be contactless. But chicken was one that was a little surprising, maybe because though of the ability to order it for a family and the fact that it transports and it reheats well, the chicken uh, QSR business really took off while burgers and tacos were lagging a little bit. You get into June, a lot of our deals had frozen and we just took all of our clients and said, hey, let's let's pause. Let's go. Let's, let's stop. Let's increase due diligence periods. Let's uh, stop the APA negotiations on our assignments for a couple of weeks. You know, and, and we were just trying to create time and space to see what was happening. But in June, our deals started kind of coming back. And, and we thought at first that it was going to be one of these situations where you would have, you know, the retrading happening and a $20 million business we were selling would all of a sudden get retraded to $16 million, but it wasn't happening. And it was because sales and profits were up. And there were enough lenders that were stepping back into the space, seeing the strength of QSR and the buyers saying that they, these businesses look like they're COVID proof that led to prices staying strong and deals actually continuing to happen that were in process. And so we got into the kind of the July, August timeframe and QSR sales continued to strengthen. We were, you know, dining, dining rooms were still largely closed as many are today. And so profits were up even more than the flow through on a dollar increase in sales would justify. So you had this like mushrooming effect on the bottom of the P&L. On the casual dining side, you started seeing bankruptcies. We started seeing clients generally start asking the question, is it maybe time to sell? I was a little afraid coming out of this pandemic, but my business is up. I'm willing to take what I was willing to take before, maybe a little less. It's now the time to do this. And you know, and, and if there's anything you hear about the M&A market for me today, it's going to be all the, the, the impact of supply and demand is probably more powerful than just EBITDA or any other little driver, right? So at the time in August, July, August, and September, there weren't any deals on the market, right? So we had a couple, we, we put like five or six deals on the market. And when we did that, we had way more interest than I thought. And it was because there was plenty of demand, maybe demand there's, you know, if there had been 10 buyers on the average deal, maybe that there's now eight, a couple of them went away, right? Some family offices and private equity firms were investing in airline industries and other places that were that were in trouble. And so they had to cover their losses and they didn't want to expand. But a lot of those folks wanted to come back into the restaurant business because of its stability on the QSR side. And you didn't have any businesses for sale. So we put these businesses on the market and lo and behold, it had a lot of interest and prices were up. A lot of it, the multiples stayed about the same, but the actual EBITDA of these businesses really was increasing. And the marketplace was recognizing that the strength of the industry was leading to higher prices. And so it really smart move by some of these guys to jump out and get in front of it when the supply was low and the demand was still there. We we now trail into November and December. Things are a little bit quiet. And this is where we find ourselves today. And I know I've been rambling, but I thought it would be would be a you know a good time to to give you the past year right as we go woo and we count our blessings for still being here even amidst all the fear we felt in March but we find ourselves here now in November and December we're looking at a political change right we're going to have a new president we're looking at still some continued craziness in Congress and we don't know what the Senate will do and we're going to opine today on what potential ranges of legislation and tax changes could be in play and how that might kind of not only impact the sale or financing of a company, but also, like I said earlier, impact the supply demand curve of M&A in early 2021. That's my 
that's all I've got, guys. Uh, other, you know, let me say that. But before I move on, the punchline is going to be this for me, and then I'll let these gentlemen speak. If your horizon to sell your company is within the next five years or less, say the next three to two or three or four years, I'm here to tell you that that you do not do yourself any favor to wait any longer. And if your goal is to continue to build a perfect PNL until May of 2021 on a TTM or trailing 12 month basis, I'm here to tell you that when your deal goes into due, due diligence, unless you can lap last year's sales, you're going to be re- retraded. You're going to be retraded if, if you have significant sales declines during due diligence. It's going to be like catching a falling knife. So don't hold out for the best, for the very last dollar of EBITDA on your PL. And there's, in my mind, there's so much murkiness with tax increases and minimum wage increases on the horizon that you would be unwise, I think, to not heavily consider selling soon or now if you haven't, if you have a horizon that's small. If you have a longer horizon, then it doesn't matter. You'll see another upside and downside and a couple of valleys and peaks between now and then. And uh, you should be consistent. You should be thinking today instead on legacy and estate planning, which we'll touch and talk about. Okay. Here we go. Shifting political landscape. Gentlemen, I want you guys to just kind of weigh in. And now I'm going to talk a lot less. Go for it. Tell me what you think as you guys look at the tax and legislative changes. Go on, Jim. You go first, brother. Obviously, we don't know what's going to happen with the Senate. So all of the stuff that we'll be talking about today that, that we think could happen, certainly that Mr. Biden would like to have happen, you got to take it all with a, with a shaker of salt because there's no way he's going to get everything that he wants. But so we're going to lay out what it is that he's talked about over the last several years and more recently in terms of what he would like to see in terms of changes in the tax law. Whether he's going to get those things or not, because some of them are pretty darn drastic, and uh, even some Democrats like um, Senator Manchin of West Virginia have indicated that that they're not going to go along with, with some of the more drastic stuff. So he's going to have to, regardless of what happens from the, with the Senate, he's going to have to pull in a, a couple of senators from the other side at least. But I think we have to assume that there's going to be some of these changes. Right now, we don't know what's going to happen in Georgia. A lot of this depends on what happens in Georgia. It looks like even though there's there's still some little battles going on, it it looks pretty much uh, written on the wall that Mr. Biden's going to be the president on January 20th. So uh, we know what his intentions are. We just don't know what he's going to be able to get through. I would echo that too, Jim. I mean, I, I think the main thing that you have to be concerned about is being a little bit of flexible as you're going through this. You've got to know what the potential is. Uh, taxes are probably at the lowest you're going to see in the next few years, right? So, you know, they, they can't go any lower. I don't think that's going to happen. I think you go back and you think about what happened when Trump was elected and he was going to make all these drastic changes. And it took him a couple of years to actually get that through. You've got the same thing that's going to happen for Biden. You've got, you know, a lot of Democrats are going to be up on the midterm elections. You know, what's going to happen to the Congress at that time? So folks are going to be a little bit more conservative than all out. So that's important. But as we're going through this, you know, think about what makes sense. Don't let the tax tail wag the dog. Rick, your comment about getting calls after they called the election for Biden. You know, I got the same call. You know, I got a dozen of them and, hey, we need to close the transaction. I got a hundred million dollar transaction and a couple others going on. And they're like, we're done. We're going to close it right now. And, you know, so that puts you, you know, in a very quick move maneuver. Right. And sometimes it's hard to to recover from that from a tax standpoint. But 
you know, when you look at it, don't let the tax tail wag the dog, but be very tax mindful as you're going through these things. You know, if you have a little bit of advice there that you can, you know, spend your money wisely, it makes a lot of sense and you get a little bit of, you know, return on that. Mm-hmm. That's it. Absolutely. That's what I wanted you to show, Rick. Yeah, I thought this was a pretty interesting thing. I mean, you know, the election betting odds is it's kind of a funny thing. That's way better than listening to the stupid news channels because they're so wrong. It's, you know, you know, it's like, I mean, I don't know. Uh, but but what do you think? Yeah, I'm still impressed that Donald's got a 9.3% chance, right? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know where that chance comes from. But but the real important thing is what happens in the Senate, Right. So if the if the Republicans can hold and pick up one seat, they sit at 51. Okay. So right now we're going into this. 46 Democrats, two ultra Democrats, Bernie Sanders and Augustus King on the on the left, right? Just call them ultra de- Democrats. So you got 48 to 50. We got two seats up, right? So if the Republicans, and it looks like on the betting odds, it's 71%. Interesting. Last time we were looking at these things, they were changing as we were just talking, weren't they? So, yeah. So, so they'll move again, right? But you know, kind of watching that, you know, you know, how many friends do you have that moved to Georgia to get in an election, right? You know, yeah. so that throws that out as an important issue. But the concern was that Biden's going to automatically raise capital gains tax to forty percent. Okay, is that a reality? It may be, right? And we're looking at that, you know, and, and he wants the means test that it's, it's when you have, you know, over a million dollars. Right. So any transaction that we're talking about is going to be over a million dollars and is yeah. going to be at that potentially at that higher rate. OK, but how quickly is that going to come? Right. So if you're looking at and, and I think you're wise, if, if it's a five year time horizon, he probably gets tax reform done in four years. You know, but I don't know that it's going to be tomorrow. But it's probably not going to be, you know, five years from now, right? So you've got to weigh that in your decision. And again, it's a tax tail wagging the dog, you know. But if the tax tail goes double, that's a pretty big tail, right? Yeah, that's not a tail. That's like a, I don't know, man. What is that? <laughs> that extra like appendage, a, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's like a, a the torso or something. I don't know. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. I like a kangaroo tail, maybe. Kangaroo tail. <laughs> Yeah, really well said. Anything? Let's ask this question because I hear this question a lot. I mean, what do you guys, I mean, no one has the final opinion on this, but a couple of things. What do you think the likelihood of uh, tax increases is uh, retroactively, number one? And, and number two, uh, we've had a couple of uh, franchisees who are very well connected politically that say some of the blue dog Democrats are going to vote against tax increases, uh, potentially, especially I keep hearing Joe Manchin in West Virginia. I keep hearing that name over and over again. So any comments on either of those too, because those those things impact people's transactions. So everyone here is listening ears. Well, we expected, I mean, the media told us that it was going to be a blue tsunami, right? And, you know, looking at the, you know, the polls prior to the election, it was going to be a landslide 10 or 15 percent point percentage points. We didn't get that. Okay. So the appetite maybe wasn't, you know, what they portrayed it to be. Okay. And I say they as, as the media, I'm against the media not to pick a political side, but they kind of led us in a direction. Will it change? Will it be drastic? I don't know. But we were talking about conspiracy theories at that time, right? We've, we've talked about that. Were they going to read something into the law before, during this lame duck and then come back and make the taxes retroactive? I, I don't know that that's you know a high risk right now, 
but it really has a lot to do what happens in January. On January 5th is really the tell, you know, and if they hold the seat, then we, we can feel pretty good that they can't pass tax legislation without Senate approval. So that's a big holdout. Jim, I know you've got some more comments about, you know, the specific senators and uh, the West Virginia and whatnot. So you're shot there. Well, actually, I, I wanted to touch a little bit more specifically on tax changes being retroactive. In the past, and y'all have probably seen this and wondered about it, you know, you'd see some law that's effective July 23rd, 1984, and you're like, how in the world did they come up with that date? Somebody must have known somebody. <laughs> and they had a transaction that occurred on the 22nd, so they wanted to exempt from that tax. But in reality, generally, and it's just a fairness issue, really, it's unfair to make a tax change that's that's unfavorable to the taxpayer without them having notice because uh, let's say you're selling a franchise or any other business deal uh, and you're doing it based on what you know the law to be and then they change the law back to the date the date before you you made the deal uh, if you had notice of that you might have done the deal differently or not done it at all so it's always been the standard to not make a, a disadvantageous tax law retroactive to a date prior to some date when the public is deemed to have notice, for example, when it's first read in committee. Uh, and that goes to Dan's comment. You, even during the lame duck, section, lame duck session here, they could introduce a tax bill that they think could maybe be passed next year. And therefore, let's say they do that on December 15th, just to pick a day. They could maybe make it retroactive or make it effective on December 15th. But then they go a step farther and say, oh, not a lot, but often enough, make it effective for that entire year. So there's a chance that they can make a law retroactive to 2000 to cover anything in 2020. I don't think that would ever happen. There's too many of those middle of the road Democrats. You don't have a lot of middle of the road either party anymore, but but there are, there are several who would not permit that to happen. So I don't see anything being effective in in 2020. So that gives us a little bit of a window of opportunity potentially. But I like Dan's comments too. I don't like them, but I, you know, yeah, I don't like them at all actually. But Dan's comments are that we're probably looking at a higher tax environment at some point. You know, so there is a window of opportunity here, and maybe we'll go to the next slide and just chat about that. You know, and let you guys just kind of opine about what is on the table. You know, whether it's today, tomorrow, next week or next year, and, and, you know, what what are we talking about here? How, conceptualize this for folks. So the main thing that you're looking at is what are the rates? You know, so the conversation that that Biden's having, you know, and, and it was a conversation that everybody was having is 20 percent corporate rate too low. Right. You know, he's thinking 27, 28 percent. And it's kind of flat. You know, there's no graduated tax in his belief. Then you come back to the individual side of things and you look at a rate increase for those over a million dollars back to 39.6, which, you know, we're just calling 40%. So what are the chances of that happening? I don't know if they move exactly back to those same things, but they probably change, you know, and they don't change for, for the better. They change for the worse if you're a taxpayer. I mean, it depends on which side you're on, right? But a, a big important you know issue is, you know, th- there is a break point on some of this. Okay, uh, top of, you know five percent of wage earners in the United States make over one hundred and fifty thousand, and they pay eighty five percent of the tax. So 
it's it's easy to pick on those guys. It's easy to pick on a franchise owner that's employing, you know, a hundred and some employees, right? It's easy to pick on them because they're making all kinds of money, right? I mean, that that's the problem and that's the that's the issue that's out there. And Bernie Sanders loves that issue, didn't he? I mean, he, he was beaten up, you know, on that the whole time. So Biden shared some of that. You know, it's it's when it's over a million dollars, we're gonna put that into play. That might play. You know, um, there are some Democrats that don't, you know, that don't subscribe to that. Some more moderate that we hope that stay on the on the correct side of the aisle and, and don't subscribe to that. But the chances of the taxes going up, I think, are pretty high. You know, it, it's hard not to not to think that they won't go up in the near term. And just the question is when. Right. It's not the question of if it's more of a question of when. And some of the taxes you're talking about, corporate income taxes would be one that's definitely probably on the table, right? But that is less probably, I mean, not entirely inapplicable to the franchise community if we're speaking to a 30 or 50 unit franchisee in Des Moines, Iowa, okay? But largely speaking, they're going to be operating through S corporations and LLCs, taxes, S corporations. And so, you know, they're thinking probably, okay, corporate income tax doesn't apply to me as much. Income taxes are going from the top rate potentially of 37.5 to 39.6. Is that right? So, so we got a, a two point move, maybe 210 basis point move, which you know is is, is significant but not earth shattering. There's really, as we look at this, probably a couple of others that really hit you in the tail, and one of them's capital gains taxes, and uh, maybe the other one is payroll taxes too, right? The deductibility of payroll taxes. You want to speak to those a little bit, you know? And I've got a little. Just a little simple, you know, Rick Ormsby kind of calculating it up on a $30 million sale, $15 million allocated to real estate, $15 million allocated to the business value. we got to make assumptions on what the basis is. But let's say of that $15 million in business value, it's not, it's not unheard of. It's pretty normal to see the FF&E allocation being around 40% of the business valuation and maybe the goodwill allocation being $9 million. So maybe you got a $30 million transaction that has $15 million in real estate, $9 million in goodwill and $6 million of FF&E. And if you roll through capital gains tax increases from 23.8% to potentially as high as 39.6%, and you guys got to tell me how you feel about all this, I come up with just the old uh, back of the envelope potential tax being anywhere from Currently on the federal side, seven to eight million, and it could be eleven to twelve million if it goes all the way to the highest, you know, that's been discussed throughout the election process. So that is, you know, guy's got 30 million, got no debt, got no transaction fees, which is always never the case. But if he doesn't, he walks away with 22 million, maybe in one, you know, now in two years from now, maybe he walks away with 18 million or something like this. You know, pretty big potential difference there, I suppose. What do you guys think? Comments? Well, in terms of the capital gains taxes, there's something that's really interesting in what Mr. Biden has proposed, and that is this flipping of the capital gains tax could actually be more than ordinary income tax because he wants to make his preference is to make to do away with capital gains discount, if you want to call it that, and just make everything ordinary income. But the 3.8% Obamacare tax would still be there, and that would apply at least the way it's written now, to your capital gains. So you could have potentially a 43.4 capital gains tax. I think, like Dan, it's much more likely that capital gains will go to you know, 27 28%. It was 28 for some time. Uh, just like we think capital or uh, corporate tax probably won't go to 35. It'll probably go to a flat 28, which is halfway there, which is kind of what he's proposed anyway. 
So yeah, your, your taxes there is going to be extremely, it's not certain, but considerably higher. My biggest concern, I think, with that, or maybe we should we should put that off in terms of talking about the estate tax. Yeah, we got another slide because I want to spend some time on that. That's something that itching ears will want to hear because it's such a massive issue. What about if you're an, I mean, look, it's one thing to be selling a company. And, you know, I harp on this all the time about valuations and timing and capital gains taxes. You know, people who know me on this webinar hear me say this stuff a lot. But, you know, what about if you're just operating a franchise company and you're thinking about the social security tax, number one, how that applies to you if that changes? And also, Maybe, maybe at the local level and the state level, what do you think about property tax increases? I mean, these aren't just negligible things. I mean, in the, you know, I, you know, you guys know I'm a Florida resident now. I got out of Dodge, but in Kentucky, man, I, in the city of Louisville, I wouldn't be surprised to see property taxes increase by 20 or 30%. I mean, because revenue is crumbling as people move away. Comments on any of that stuff? I see two things with property tax and I'll let Dan talk today. He's, he's more in tune with that. But one is where capital gains tax is going to affect you generally when you sell your business one time. You're paying these increased property taxes every single year. The next thing that happens is that that depresses your EBITDA, which depresses your ultimate sale price. It hits you a couple of ways. Yeah. That's the problem with the franchise. You're trying to be where the people are. And, you know, the, the these metropolitan areas know that, right? And so, you know, the, there's a cost in their theories. There's a cost for you to be in the city of Louisville or the city of Atlanta, or, you know, DC, or wherever you're at, right? Des Moines, Iowa. I mean, there's a cost for being in there. So they want they they want to pick up that revenue. And, you know, look, one of the things we've remember from COVID, and, you know, this is not exactly germane to your audience, per se, but, but people are going to work remotely. Okay, so they're going to flock out of these cities. So that's where a little bit of that drains coming from. And, you know, we experienced the problems in, you know, downtown Louisville. Nobody's going down there. It's a ghost town, right? So they've got to replace that revenue. And, you know, where are people moving? You know, people are moving in outside of major politi- you know, population centers. So they've got to build that revenue back up. But the problem is franchise uh, restaurants, you know, the fa- quick casual, I want to be there. I want to be where the people are, right? And that's where the revenue is going to be. So, yeah, they're going to have to replace that revenue. Property tax is an automatic. It's an easy one, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, expect those things to go up. And it is going to impact EBITDA, right? You know, you also have the increase in minimum wage and those considerations that are, you know, out there, you know, places that are moving in that direction. Um, Social Security tax, look, we can fix, you know, we have a problem with Social Security, right, Rick? Yeah. Um, and oh, how many yeah. times have we had this conversation? We can fix Social Security over underfunding real quick. Remove the cap. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. is that going to go up? Potentially. Right. I mean, those, those are sources to raise revenue. What does that mean to the casual listener here? We can remove the cap. I mean, put that into an example. Let's say a franchisee makes a million dollars. Easy math. Well, so, does- so now we're always dealing with reasonable comp, right? In an S corporation, you can't just take 100% of your profits out as S-Corp distributions, right? So you do have to have some compensation. Somebody typically has some compensation. So normally we try to stay below or at that Social Security cap, okay? Unless we have a retirement plan or something in place that we're trying to maximize a different benefit. So the Social Security cap stops at the 132, uh, 136,000 range, right? If you remove the cap and you you have a W-2 of 300,000, okay? which is probably reasonable if you're making a million bucks, right? So your exec's making, 
250, 300,000. Well, you pick up that 6.2% on him up and the company is going to match that. So you've got this, you know, stealth tax that's going to be 12.4%. And if you do that on executives, right, then boom, we fix social security problem really fast, right? But it's at a cost. A lot of you, the larger franchisees who are listening, who might have a structure that's like franchisee and partner here, and then like maybe, you know, like, you know, four or five region coaches and maybe 50 restaurants that are that have area coaches and restaurant managers. I mean, you're talking up here, especially if you got a guy who's making, you know, $150,000, $175,000 a year. Let's say he's making 200000 with bonus and everything else, and he's managing a, a significant portion of your business. What Dan's describing could, uh, for that one employee, could potentially mean another seven or eight thousand dollars a year in tax for for both you and the company, right? So you multiply that out uh, across multiple folks, and it could be substantial. But even bigger, obviously, for the owner himself or herself. Absolutely. And Obama, we've had a view of what Biden's done, right? He was in, you know, he was the number two guy for eight years. They brought Obama brought this up, this topic of the Social Security thing every year that he was in office. So it, it's something that, you know, if we're predicting what's going to happen, that, that's probably one that goes away or gets attacked. Let's put it that way. Jim, your thoughts? One thing that Biden just said is he would like to, and maybe it still stays at 137, but if you make over $400,000 in compensation, there's not going to be a cap above that. In other words, everything that you, up to 137, everything you make above 400, it's going to be subject to FICA. And you're going to have that donut hole in the middle. What I expect to happen is, I mean, that may happen. There's a lot of people that would vote for that just because, oh, those are the super rich people. (laughs) But I think also you're going to see more than a creep up, but a pretty substantial increase in the 137 cap that we have now. So, for example, you might have the first 200 is subject to the tax, and then you got the donut hole, and then everything over 400 is subject to the tax. We don't know how that's going to come out, but those are the proposals that have been out there. You know, now after hearing all this, I feel like I want to jump off a cliff. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate that. So, uh, <laughs> so, but I got one other piece of bad news. And when I got those dozen phone calls, right, you know, the the mo- Monday after Saturday, uh, Biden is is you know, declared or self declared whatever is president is president in waiting. Most of the calls were not as concerned on taxes, believe it or not, as they were on minimum wage increases. And almost all of those dozen calls were large franchisees in the southeastern United States. And it's probably because of the glorious state of Florida passing a graduated minimum wage increase to $15 through 2026. And I heard that over and over again. I mean, and I've personally seen, you know, in our unbridled business, what the impact of minimum wage increases means to people's p ls I'll say this. If you're in the southern United States, a lot of people are paying an average wage that's eight or nine dollars an hour. I think nationally, if you're not in a high minimum wage state, a lot of people are having to compete for labor and paying at least 10 bucks an hour. I don't know what your particular situation is if you're a franchisee. What I can tell you is in 2018, we had a deal in Seattle and uh, in the middle of the transaction, it went to $15 an hour minimum wage. And I watched, no kidding, over the course of prob- almost overnight, it seemed, maybe it was over 60 to 90 days, but the person's EBITDA dropped 70 to 80%. It was shocking. It was shocking. It was almost like half of the stores went unprofitable immediately. Franchisee ended up in bankruptcy. 
I mean, it was just it was just shocking. Now, I think the learning from that is a lot of states are going to put in graduated, you know, increases to get to fifteen dollars. But if you know Florida can turn, the other states are are probably, you know, in the South are going to be somewhat behind it. And you cannot price your way out of minimum wage increases. I mean, you can't do it immediately. You'll lose your customers. They're not that elastic with their pricing. They're not going to come and order a three dollar taco tomorrow if they paid a dollar fifty for it yesterday. So you have to do it over time and you have to be patient. Those are some of the, you know, learnings I, you know, I think I've had there. Any, any comments on that guys? Uh, but, but that's clearly the biggest one because I think you're going to find EBITDA on an operating business is especially one that, that operates, you know, relatively low wage employees. It's going to be hit pretty hard. And there's been a lot of rhetoric at the presidential campaign level about $15 minimum wage being a living wage. Well, the difficulty with all that rhetoric is that even if that doesn't happen, it immediately affects the value of your business just because banks are going to be a little bit more reticent to lend, not knowing what the future is going to hold, not knowing whether that that borrower is going to be able to fund that loan over time if the government takes 80%, 70% of the profits away. So I, I think it's going to affect people's businesses regardless of, of how it actually comes out in, in terms of, of uh, pricing the sale. As always, if you're a franchisee, you want to be operating the best brands and be the best operator. And if you do those things, you're going to be fine. Because I've always believed that the cream's all, a cream always rises to the top. You know what I mean? Like the, the best always gets better. And the, the, wor- the ones that struggle are the ones that were marginal to begin with. So if you're operating a brand that's a legacy brand that hasn't performed well historically or has kind of languished along, those are the brands I tell you, you know, need to be cognizant of operating into 2022 and three. Let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, about PPP and loan forgiveness. You know, it's a little bit, you know, it's maybe a little bit apart from, well, it involves taxation. You guys have done a lot of good work related to this. We've got a lot of new news coming out. Could you kind of give us a little update on what you think the tax, you know, just kind of what's going on, how to prepare for paying for a possible tax in 2021, how to think about all this stuff? I love your screen. You've got it laid out there. You know, the first question and the most looming question is, is the triple P going to be taxable, right? Right now, as the code stands, as Munchen and the IRS have said, hey, it's taxable. And it's taxable whenever year you get it forgiven. Now, you're probably not going to get it forgiven in 2020, you know, last part of this year, because nobody's accepting applications, really. You know, none of the big banks are accepting applications. Under 50,000, you know, they're taking those applications and then they're, you know, everybody else is pretty much stalled. Okay. So you're going to get your forgiven notice. That's going to happen in 2021, but that's going to revert back to your 2020 tax return. Okay. Mm-hmm. And remember the, the conversation is, you know, the loan itself is not taxable. The forgiveness of the loan itself is not taxable income. Okay. That, that's what they've said. But where they come back and make it taxable is those expenses that gave rise to the forgiveness. Those expenses are not deductible, right? I love how tax, you know, we start getting in all these conversations, accountants and CPAs and lawyers, right? And, and we really, well, you know, the loan's not taxable, but the expenses that gave rise to it are not deductible. I mean, that's confusing. That means, why don't you just make it easier? If I borrowed a hundred bucks, I got to pay 35 of it back. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, that, that's exactly make it understandable, it you know? We double talk all the time. I mean, it, yeah. it's taxable income. Yeah. So what do you do with that right now? Okay. You have to prepare your tax projections under two scenarios, I think. 
The current scenario is it's taxable. You, you have to recognize that fact, okay? There's the potential, and we're hoping the lame duck fixes this, and everything that I've seen on the proposed laws are they do fix this, okay? They just can't come together right now because they're playing poli- you know, partisan politics right now, okay? If we can get that, that would be the best Christmas present for a lot of clients, right? You know, because I, I got this relief loan, and now I'm going to have to pay tax on it. And if it's, you know, two to $5 million, that's a big number that I'm paying 30, you know, 35, 37% on. Yeah. That, that really didn't help me. I appreciated it, but it really didn't help me in the long term. Okay. So I made a $3 million loan. I got a $3 million loan. It's basically all forgivable. I'm sitting here and I got them right now. I got a million dollars. I got to pay back under the current legislation. When do I have to pay this darn money back? Does it go against my 2020 tax return, but I pay it in 2021? Mm-hmm. Well, so that's that's an interesting point. So we always want to be, you know, subject to safe harbor, right? So we want to pay our tax based on the prior year or ninety percent of the current year. Okay. So we're 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 looking at, you know, clients right now in under those scenarios, and we got to run both scenarios. And then we have to flip a coin. I, you know, if we've got you to prior year safe harbor, right, then you're good. But who wanted to pay prior year safe harbor in March? When, when I was calling you and saying, Hey, you got a first quarter estimate and it's a large one, and you're going I don't know if my doors are going to stay open. What are you talking about? I got to write a check, right? Yeah. You know, and that was the beauty of Triple P. It came out and said, hey, this is going to be tax- non-taxable money for you, right? And everybody said, hooray, that makes a lot of sense, right? And that, I think, really helped the recovery, right? Because we, we come in there, we flood the market with dollars, and the stock market takes off, yeah. you know? Yeah. People yeah. get calm, you know? It, it settled things. And then, you know, they come along and tell us, well... You know, we were just kidding about the taxable part, right? So you got a first quarter that you're underwater. Then what happened for your second and third quarter? I mean, we were all waiting for the surge again, right? So nobody's wanting to part extra, you know, release extra capital and let alone we don't want to give it to the government, right? So a lot of people are coming into the end of the year and they're not on the prior year safe harbor, right? And like you said on the, you know, on the on the quick serve, they picked back up, right? They're making a little bit more. And, and you're not, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not telling my my staff people, hey, we're you know, we're doing really well because I'm beating the drum, man. This this is hard economy. It's a hard economy, right? You know, but you know, you're dropping dollars to the bottom line, but you don't know. I mean, yes, we have a vaccine. Who knows? But the question to your point, though, Rick, is, you know, January fifteenth, you know, you you want to make your quarter fourth quarter estimate and get yourself caught up, okay, as much as you po- possibly can. And then the question is that, is that airball taxable? Look, all taxes are paid and due. You know, if you're a corporation, it's March 15th. If you're an individual, it's April 15th. So you know you're going to have a payment event that's going to happen there. Jim and I debate whether or not we can get a reasonable cause waiver on an estimated tax penalty. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. The law says you should be paying it, right? Hmm. But we are in a pandemic, right? I, I don't it's know. Interesting if I'm, point. It's an interesting yeah, point. That, yeah, it's an interesting point. So th- that's the question, you know, April 15th for most of your S Corp folks are going to have to pay a tax. And then heaven forbid, if we're going to safe Harbor, you're paying one fourth of 2020s taxes, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't that a scary mm-hmm. thing, you know, mm-hmm. to get to the safe Harbor, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that that's a big, big issue. So you've got to think about that. We hope they fix it. We're doing strategies that leave people pretty open. And I'll be honest with you, if I have to pay the estimated tax penalty, I'll pay the estimated tax penalty rather than release the dollars. 
But when I say that, I have to tell the client, hey, are you willing to pay that 7% estimated tax penalty that's non-deductible? And you know, they want to quantify it. And you know, I've I've got a I've got a $5.5 million triple P loan right now. Without the loan, it's $1.8 million loss. With the loan, it's you know, three and a half million dollar income, mm-hmm. right? And what's the estimated tax penalty? I mean, that that's what they wanted to know because we're trying to give as much time, you know, for liquidity purposes, because they need that money. They they're not ready to write that check to Uncle. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hopeful that, that that legislation gets fixed. And again, I made the comment today. I saw a point that they're talking about being able to issue a second uh, round of for 300 employees or less. If you had any quarter in 2020, your revenue was down 30 percent or more over last year. You could apply for a second round of of money that could be fully forgiven. So that may apply to second quarter, especially for a lot of our casual dining fast casual clients uh, or gym clients, you know what I mean? People who operate health and fitness businesses and auto businesses because their revenues were down a lot. doesn't probably apply so much to the QSR franchisees. Keep note of that. Guys, we've got 11 minutes left. And so I wanted to make sure we hit the rest of this. So Jim, you're on deck, buddy boy. What do you think about estate planning? This is something that really needs a little bit of attention, if you don't mind. I think estate planning changes are are low-hanging fruit for Democrats in that because it affects only the filthy rich, right? As they see it. <laughs> so the, the proposal has been to go from the current exemption, I think it's 11,580 per person, basically 23 million per couple, to three and a half million per person. And to decouple the, the gift tax from that and limit gift taxes during your lifetime to 1 million. The, the really, really scary thing to go, oh, they want to raise the tax rate to maybe 45% from 40 to 45, which is not that big a deal but reducing the exemption affects a lot of small business owners. But to me, the really scary part is, is what he's proposed with, you know, the step up in basis when you die, whatever your, your assets are worth, that's what your heirs take as a tax basis. They can immediately sell that. The capital gain is just gone. It dies with you. He's talking about doing away with that, number one. But worse than that, he's talking about making death a gain recognition event. Which means when you die, not only do you have the estate tax, you have potentially a 43.4% income tax, which comes off first. And then whatever you've got, whatever they leave you after that is subject to the 45% estate tax. So you're talking about, we've run the numbers, and the government basically could get 68% of what you've worked your whole life for, assuming you have no tax basis. And you know how it is with most of these uh, closely held S-corps, tax basis is not that huge. So assuming a $10 million business, for example, the government could get $6.8 million of that, leaving your heirs 3.2%, just under a third of what you've worked your whole life for. And, then, and the bill is due immediately within nine months after death, too. So what you're doing is you're, you're putting a gun to the heads of your, of your kids and saying the repercussions are dramatic of, of what happens next. I mean, they're dramatic. Yeah, you know, I don't have a family with any money, but if I did... And all the, you know, all of a sudden the $10 million gain comes to me and I got to pay 6.8 million in taxes that I don't have. That forces me to liquidate. And then when I liquidate, you talked about this earlier, I have to liquidate at a discount, don't I? Because I'm in a fire sale, daggone it. I got to get the darn money to pay the tax. So whatever I'm, that I get a hold of that's worth 10 million, unless it's stocks that I can liquid like, trade quickly. I got to dump it for a, for a discount. You know, it's, it's a fire sale to pay the taxes. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's almost criminal. I don't know. 
Well, and you could be selling into a down market too, but hey, yeah, there is that's true. There. We, we do have section 6166 for closely held business to allow you to pay that tax over time. But the best your kids are going to get is the 3.2 million of your estate. If, if you have to sell it quicker than, than you should because the market's not right, then they're going to lose more than that because you'll sell it for less than its, its value at day to day. Planning's critical. A lot of your clients I know are, are, are putting things in trusts now to you know cover their assets and, 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 and plan for their legacy to avoid a possibility this exemption will go lower, way lower. What about insurance? But one thing on that, there is no clawback. For example, if you give $11 million to a trust today, and then the law changes and reduces the exemption to $3.5 million, that $11 million is out. They're not clawing that back. Okay, so if you're concerned about the uh, exemption for state tax going down dramatically next year, it's a good idea. It's kind of late, but it's a good idea to make those gifts today if you can, or before the 31st. Yeah, well said. Insurance becomes important too, right? Insurance is a huge thing. We're starting those conversations again, you know, putting in an irrevocable life insurance, looking at second to die policies. If it's taxable at the first death, the second to die is not, you know, you, you need to have a first to die policy. Are you insurable? What are you doing with those? Um, making sure that you've got a reputable insurance company. You know, I just had the conversation earlier this week on a, you know, $5 million policy. You've got to have some liquidity. And that's what life insurance is for. I mean, that that's really what it comes into the high net worth person is as a vehicle to help pay the estate tax, a vehicle to make sure that you keep some amount of um, net worth in your family. So you definitely have to consider it. Isn't it just funny? You know, here I am sitting here. I just started rubbing two nickels together, selling chicken stores and, uh, and taco stores and pizza stores, you know, simple, right? Make a phone call, get to know people. Why, why does this get so complicated, man? I mean, you know what I mean? I'm just listening to you guys. I'm like, oh my goodness, it hurts my brain. But thank, thankfully, you guys, uh, you know, will lead into the next slide, right? Because it hurts my brain and you guys are, are good advisors. And so, I do uh, quarterly tax and legal planning meetings with these two gentlemen. I mean, you should too. It isn't, you know, you know what I mean? You know, you just got to trust good professionals. And these two guys particularly are really good with creative ideas. And so I, I don't know if you have anything that you wanted to share, but you, you got to think about revenue recognition, expense planning, borrowing against related companies. If you're trying to hedge yourself against tax increases in 2021, look at distributions, extended filings. We just got three or four minutes. I know there's a lot we could say about that this slide, but let me let me do a little rapid fire Q and A. What do you think these guys, uh, gentlemen? What do you think changes on the tax and legislative horizon? Which ones are most and least likely to occur? Do you think? I think the most likely to occur is some change in the estate planning exemptions. Maybe not as dramatic as he wants, but that that's kind of an easy one for for Congress to get together on, right? Yeah, Rick, we do have a question: S corp versus C corp. You know, do the potential income and estate tax tips the balance one way or the other? Yes, they do. So C Corp was in play for a little bit. C Corp's not so much in play right now. It depends on what the tax rate. If we go back up to 28%, you've got to run the numbers. You've got to look at it. Um, one thing that we didn't mention, and since we're in rapid fire, we're going to lose the SALT. I mean, we, with the SALT's $10,000, state and local income tax deduction. You're going to lose that. You know, that's one of the things Obama or Biden wants to do. He wants to he wants to means test that again. So it's almost an alternative minimum tax. So you'll get, you know, 28 percent tax benefit of your itemized deductions. 
and he wants to keep the salt. Dan, sorry to interrupt you. That's a big deal. So uh, as simple as, as an old redneck could take it is this. If you're going to, if you're a charitable person and you're going to give away, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, I don't know, it's a stupid number, right? hundred thousand dollars to your church and you're expecting at your, at your tax bracket to get a 40% tax, you know, kind of deduction. Yep. What Biden is proposing is that that deduction only becomes 28% now. That's right. That's right. That that sucks. Well, it, so, it, that sucks so, for charities. That sucks for charities. Well, it, go it back. really does. So if we go back to your last, your slide, and you don't have to go back, but in your last slide, it's you, you do need to have a conversation with good trusted professionals. You need to be crunching the numbers. You need to be looking at this prospectively of what's going on and what's your end game. My end game for my clients is to keep as much money as we can, right? To find the strategy that makes sense. And if you have to put in an S corporation or a C corporation and you do a conversion, you, you do those things when it makes sense, but you've got to run the numbers and you have to have those dialogues back and forth. Yeah, it's great. Well said. We got time for one more of these. Uh, any, you know, I'll take a couple of questions here. I had one question come in, but I'll address the third one here is how will that, will these tax changes affect valuations? I mean, I, who knows? We're coming into a tough winter before we have the vaccine rolled out. You know, uh, it's possible that we see that we see, uh, you know, consumer spending kind of dip. I don't know. Maybe we get the maybe we get this big government stimulus and, and consumer spending comes back. I think when the vaccine comes out next summer, my opinion is you're going to see people out there spending money and probably spending it pretty forcefully. So you could see in your business your EBITDA going up potentially, but I think also the valuation, the multiples, the EBITDA multiples and cap rates are going to get impaired as you have, number one, more supply on the market, which is going to happen in the first and second quarter of 2021. Because like I said, you're not real bright if you're thinking of selling in the next three years and you don't consider it now or soon. I, as I say it again, you're not real bright if you're doing that. So that's going to cause a lot of clients and a lot of franchisees to consider selling. Supply is going to increase. Demand stays the same price. What happens? It goes down. The other thing is, I think that the tax regulations and the minimum wage impact is going to start creeping its way into the EBITDA multiple. So in other words, someone might say, gee, I won't pay six times EBITDA or six and a half or seven times EBITDA for this business in Florida anymore, knowing that in six years, I've got to pay $15 minimum wage. I might now reduce my EBITDA multiple to five and a half or six, you see? So these little things start filtering their way through through uh, through the marketplace. And I think what you might see is you might potentially see EBITDA lifting, but EBITDA multiples and cap rates getting worse. And the net effect could be that valuations probably, you know, stay close to where they are now. I, you know, that, I mean, that might be a, a, just a guess, but then you've got higher taxes that you have to think about. So uh, the net net is that that I think we're we're running into an environment here where if you're looking to maximize the net proceeds in the sale of your company, I think the, the value the discussion here leads you to a negative place beyond uh, the middle of next year is, is just kind of my commentary. I want to thank everyone for their time today. Here's the Dan and Jim's contact information. I'm sure any of the three of us would be honored to answer any of your questions at any time, any of them really. And we're delighted that you, that you're on the call, check out the webinar, watch for the email to come with a review of this, uh, you know, replay of this webinar and also, and also the podcast. Uh, guys, do you have any final words that you want to share with, with folks listening here as they, as they end up, hang up here? Well, thanks everybody for your time. Hopefully you have good advisors. You need to use them, put the topics on the table. This is the time to be proactive. Um, the next couple of years, you want to be ahead, not playing from behind. That's great. Well said. Okay, guys, many best wishes. Hey guys, everybody, 
Jim, Dan, and everyone listening, Merry Christmas, man. You know what I mean? Let's persevere. It hurts, doesn't it? And you know what? There's a lot of psychological pain and people are fatigued. We're sitting in our darn houses. Kids are not in school. You know, we can't see our loved ones when they're sick and passing away. I mean, it isn't the easiest, but daggone it, we're resilient people. We have been for 200 and some odd years. We're going to get through it. Keep a positive attitude, man. And Merry Christmas to both of you. Absolutely. Merry Christmas, everybody. See y'all later. Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors, LLC, give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom.